In this conversation, I speak with Satya Vayu, whose writings I recently came across. He writes about spiritual traditions and practices, as well as environmental activism and engagement. Really wanted to have him on to speak about these things and learn more about him and his life and how he sees things. I really enjoyed this conversation. I feel very moved by it and I'll be reflecting on it for quite a while and I hope you'll enjoy it as well and take it into consideration for your own life and the people around you. So please enjoy. Thank you so much for joining me, Sayavayu. Really appreciate you joining. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, so as I mentioned previously, I really like to just start by getting to know people and hearing about their story. And um, I, I, I've been very curious from reading your writings about uh, your story and, and where, where you're coming from. So I'd love to hear anything that you have to share about you know, your spiritual path and your interest in activism and, and how that got started and what, you know, just take me through it in whatever length you'd like about kind of your life. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, could be a big subject. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, uh, I like that you call it a story because that's, that's what it is. And um, I'll be recreating it now. And, and uh, another time I might re recreate it differently and our memories are so faulty. And uh, mm -hmm. um, so it's just a, uh, I'm aware it's, it's somewhat of a fabrication, although not intentional, and, and I hope your listeners are as well. Um, but uh, in terms of my, I think my interest in uh, uh, environmental and ecological awareness and responsibility is, is quite tied to my, the burgeoning of my interest in spiritual practice too. Um, and I grew up in New York City uh, so very urban, obviously, and uh, a bit nature starved, I felt. So I, I always felt a strong connection to nature from an early age. The times we would go to the country were the, were the most intense and beautiful for me in my childhood memories. So um, I started camping and backpacking pretty early, early on as a, as a youngster. Um, and I think that uh, probably quite a few people can relate that experiences you have in the wilderness when you're outside of the physical manifestation of human thought and um, immersed in something that we can't intellectually understand, the miracle of life just emerging around us, living and growing around us. Um, that's a first uh, entryway for a lot of people into life beyond thought, life beyond uh, intellectual construct and the miracle and beauty of it beyond our own, our own uh, preoccupations with uh, our temporary concerns and worries and, and human relations. So, you know, I consider that the beginning of my spiritual practice periods of, of time, especially alone in the woods. I started backpacking alone probably in my mid-teens. Um, and in terms of um, spiritual practice, uh, I don't really know how it started. It's quite, it's quite mysterious. You know, we can always say karma, <laughs> mysterious karma. But uh, I was really into writing as, uh, as a school kid, creative writing, stories, and I wanted to be a writer. It was kind of my, my focus, and I had some, some talent and, and was... Uh, uh, encouraged by teachers. 
I remember that I wrote in a, in uh, eighth grade, I think it was a story that had to do with a young person uh, who had trouble speaking uh, to a, to a late age. It's based on a, a cousin of mine, and um, suddenly learned to speak. And I I wrote it as if it was a reduction in their ability to perceive uh, a more unlimited and unbounded view of the universe. So it, it had some kind of little inklings of, of non-duality that early. I think I had read some Salinger and I don't know what my influences were. I had never studied any, any actual Asian religion and um, I don't have any, anyone I can remember in my family who was interested. So somehow that was percolating in my consciousness. Um, and uh, I got involved a little bit in activism back then too, around that time, middle school and high school. I, met, I remember meeting someone on a bus who encouraged me to join the Sierra Club and this kind of thing. So obviously I was interested in saving as much as I could be of, of uh, nature because of my love for it. That was already developed at that time. Um, my formal or more formal practice or, or influence with Asian religion would have been in college. Um, I started studying it academically, Indian religion, Chinese, Japanese religion. And I had been very influenced by Krishnamurti uh, at some point during those years, um, which uh, had a big impact on me, I think, because Krishnamurti is so non-traditional in terms of his um, uh, non-reliance non on any kind of uh, religious forms and ritual and identity and lineage and all that, and uh, just kind of direct questioning of what our reality is beyond our thought. And so that has stayed with me as the fundamental. And as I've taken up religions and practiced in lineages and um, practiced different uh, specific outer forms, I've kind of kept this, this sense of uh, the ultimate inquiry or the ultimate practice is not tied to any of those things. And now in my life, I'm, I'm not practicing many of those more traditional forms. So I've kind of returned to that to some degree. Um, but I, I led a class in my college because we had an experimental college where students can, can teach things. So I led one on Krishnamurti, kind of a discussion group. It was a little intimidating because it was a couple of women I remember from India who had grown up in Krishnamurti schools who joined the group. So, but uh, they claimed not to be specialists in Krishnamurti, so it was, uh, it was all right. But, uh, uh, I think it was my... My first year at college, there was a Zen group starting and I went to the formation meeting. So I, I must've been quite interested then, but um, it didn't keep going. And it wasn't until my last year uh, after, after I'd, I'd studied it uh, academically somewhat and done quite a bit of reading that um, the group started again and, and I joined it. And that was the first time I started sitting regularly. Uh, and I remember quite a, a strong experience the very first time, even just a five minute or 10 minute sit and feeling like, wow, we're really allowed to just be. That's actually okay to not have to accomplish something. Hmm. And uh, from then on, I, I pretty much sat every day. I kind of took over the group and made it a meet uh, every day, I think, and just a handful of, of people. 
and then uh, I was uh, through that group. I, I became aware of someone who had a little more experience and a little more like a teacher um, in nearby uh, Kent State. I was going to Overland College, so this is in Ohio, and uh, Kent State was an hour or two away or something. And um, a man named Tim McCarthy had a had a house there. He was maybe at that time, maybe teaching, maybe a graduate student also, I'm not sure. But um, he had like a house that had his end theme. that had some sittings and we kind of went for a, a very informal one day sitting. And I met him and, and liked him. And, and he told me about his teacher who was Covencino Roshi and got me uh, interested in meeting him. And I managed to graduate even though my attention was moving strongly away from academics and uh, uh, came out west and uh, searched for Coben. Basically, I went to his place in New Mexico first, thinking he was a normal teacher that would kind of live at a center or be regularly expected at a center, but he wasn't. He was a kind of poetic hermit wanderer type guy that was never very comfortable being a teacher, um, but had a lot of uh, beauty in his expression and, and understanding and meditation to share with people. When you did, when you did find, <laughs> manage to find them. But uh, I met some of the Sangha members and had a good connection, and and went on to California, and uh, lived, lived in the East Bay, with some college friends, and started going regularly to Berkeley Zen Center. Worked a little with Mel Weitzman, who was the, I guess still is the teacher there. Maybe he's in semi-retirement now, getting on, um, and. Uh, was also getting involved in direct action, uh, environmental protection uh, at that time. Something called Redwood Summer was going on where they wanted people to do direct action up in the Redwood Forest in Northern California. So I, I went up there a couple of times. And, um, and I remember uh, Mel suggested to me that uh, Tassajara would be a good place for me since he saw I was pretty keen on, on training and uh, pretty ambitious and my, uh, my love for sitting and, and how much I wanted to practice. And uh, I, was, I, was, I expressed concern at that time that um, I felt there was such a need for environmental activism. I didn't want to kind of hide myself away in a monastery. And um, he said, well, try it for a year and there'll still be environmental problems when you come out, you can work on it. So that convinced me, I guess it didn't take much. And I went to Tassajara. And um, Tassajara being the uh, one of the first Zen monasteries in the country, in the inland from from Big Sur in California, and uh, enjoyed that quite a bit. Um, was getting into the the, the tradition, and um, uh, you know, exploring the the origins of it, the more traditional origin of origins of it to an extent. At that time, I was also practicing with Coben. I had finally met him at, at uh, his California place, Jikoji in the Santa Cruz Mountains. And I'd done some sessions with him and, and formed some kind of connection with him, although it's very mysterious. And uh, uh, I don't know about other people's relationship with him, but I never felt like mine was buddy, buddy kind of thing. Um, but uh, once in a while, you'd see him and he'd say some interesting thing for you to chew on for a while. It's kind of like that. 
Um, but after Tassajara, I, uh, I wanted more strict training. I felt it was too lax, too westernized. Um, and I wasn't, I was feeling like I wanted to try other teachers as well. So I started to getting keen on the idea of going to uh, Asia. Um, and I signed up for this uh, intense three month retreat, which is pretty much like a three month session, which is what I think the traditional angos are or were at one point. And it was for international students in Korea with the Kwanam School, started by Semester Sung San. They're all over the world. They had this, uh, they probably still do some form. They had a three month intensive retreat in Korea. And I wasn't familiar with the school, but I, I, I met with Sung San in, in, at the, their Berkeley Center and, and asked for permission to join it. And uh, he, uh, he approved that. And, and shortly before going, there was a guy, gosh, I can't remember his name. I hope to reconnect with him one day. Really nice guy. I liked him older than me and had been around the block. He was at Tassajara and he had done this three month retreat before in Korea. So we would discuss it for a while since I was getting set for that. And he said, you know, if you're going that far, you may as well uh, stop off in Japan as well and check out this unusual place that not many people know about called Bukogoji. And uh, so I said, that sounded like a good idea. And I did that. And I was very impressed with Bukogoji and the teacher there, Harada Tangen Roshi. Um, who was uh, really one of the recent greats and teachers. Uh, I think in Japan, most people have met him, concur with that. And uh, I almost just wanted to stay there. He wanted me to stay there after two months, but I continued on to the three month thing in Korea that I was programmed to do. And then I, I went on to do a pilgrimage of India, which I had wanted to do. I had a great love for Indian culture and, and the origins of Buddhism. So I did the Buddhist pilgrimage there and, um, also did a long walk uh, from Dharamsala across the Himalayas to Leh Ladakh, which is uh, politically in India, but a, a Tibetan Buddhist culture, basically. Um, and uh, really, that made a big impact on me in many ways. Um, it's the only real traditional culture that I've ever encountered in person in my life. And there's so few of them left in the world that it's a, it's a pretty rare thing. We're more rare today now than even then. Um, but when you get several days walk from the nearest road, the, the villages are very, very traditional. I mean, people were just farming as they always had and, and uh, wearing traditional clothes and very few TVs, if any, in those small villages. And um, pretty amazing how settled and uh, relaxed people seem to be compared to what I had grown up with. And um, the beauty of the landscape and their ecologically harmonious way of living was just so impressive. And in many ways, I was tempted to just want to stay there, you know, make a life for myself there somehow. But I also knew they were doomed. You could see the roads being built then by the Indian government and um, uh, TVs coming in and the young people being taught that their culture was backward and they had to get money and um, you could see change was happening and I felt being in my own culture where all this was coming from or one of the one of the origin spots of it would might be the best help for me to return to and, and work on creating alternatives here so uh, 
I did return to the States after that trip, but then uh, wanting more training at, at the place I had visited in Japan, Bukokiji, um, seemed like the best bet. I talked to Coben about that and uh, oh, I was actually ordained then uh, as a priest by Coben. It's interesting, before that, before going to India, I, I felt I was totally dedicated to practice and want to make my life focused on it. But it seemed like the priest ordination thing was just a, was just a extra baggage, extra formality, cultural, cultural stuff that your ego can attach to and, and I wasn't so interested. But after being in India and seeing cultures you know, both, both Ladakh with their Tibetan Buddhist culture, but also India with their um, yogic renunciate culture. Um, I saw that the people who were recognizable as full-time practitioners in some way, whether monks or sadhus or whatever they might be, had a real role in society in terms of inspiring people, in terms of uh, creating a balance in their culture, keeping the values of simplicity really strong, keeping the value, you know, spiritual values uh, uh, reinforced against the onslaught of, of interest in money and, and other uh, less, uh, less wholesome, we can say, or ultimately satisfying pursuits. And so I realized getting ordained can be, it wasn't so much for me, it wasn't about what I identify it as, but it's, it, it, was a, it was a gesture for others um, for the wider community to be recognizable as someone people could approach or just get inspired by, even if, you know, it was just the sight of you, you know. Sung San used to ha have a saying that just putting on the robe saves all beings from suffering. Mm. Mm. So, uh, so that's why I asked to get ordained at that point. And um, after some months that happened. And, but, but Coben wasn't much of a trainer, as I mentioned before. He, he just appears and disappears. For a little while, his standards are pretty lax um, in terms of discipline, and which is, you know, I now appreciate much more, I think, than I did then. But I was a eager beaver in my twenties, and so uh, I asked him if I could go to to Bukokuji, even though it was a different teacher, which some Japanese people get a little uppity about. And he was fine with, and um, off I went. And for the next five years, I was basically at Bukokuji training, which was a uh, pretty vigorous, satisfied my interest in vigor, satisfied my interest for an inspirational teacher. And uh, you can see the roots of, of Japanese Zen because uh, you know, the Japanese culture has, has changed so radically from its, its traditional roots these days that the, the little island of, of uh, secluded island I was in was pretty traditional. We grew a lot of our own food. We picked herbs from the mountainside and the training was pretty full on. There wasn't a lot of, uh, there wasn't a lot of ritual and um, hierarchy and a lot of things people complain about from Japanese culture that really has very little to do with Zen, but, but has crept in from, from the culture. It was a pretty informal place in that sense. And the teacher didn't, he just wanted you to sit a lot and, and hear his teachings, which were pretty simple and repeated over and over again, just about letting go and being present. And he didn't want people to learn Japanese. He says, we have enough problems with English. We should be getting another language. Just stop talking so much and go sit. And uh, it was a very small temple. We didn't have much to take care of. We didn't have a lot of work to do. It was quite a bit of free time, but also a lot of sitting, a lot of sessions. And 
he was just very inspirational and, and quite active at that time. He, he started to fade. He was in his 70s, I think, at that time. So uh, after I had left, he you know, was getting on. He would still do some tagatsu with us, though, still do some begging with us, the shorter mm -hmm. trips. It was amazing in the 70s. So. Um, I left most summers and came back to the States, visit Coben, visit my parents. Um, summers, there were no sessions, and it was really hot and muggy there. But uh, most of the rest of the year, I was there um, for five years or so. And at the beginning, I was very inspired uh, about that lifestyle and um, uh, felt that my practice was deepening substantially. But after a while, for me, um, you know, you get used to anything. And uh, it was less transformative. And I was getting a little more interested in exploring other avenues in my life. I had uh, never really explored intimate relationships. Um, so it was pretty unusual in that, in that sense. In high school and college, I had never been in relationships. And so I was quite curious about that at this point <laughs> and um, didn't really want to have a celibate life. And uh, yeah, I think I just felt done with that particular limited structure, really appreciative of it, but also that I wanted to move on. But I wasn't quite done, actually. I, I was interested in how it was in China, and I was interested in pushing myself a little farther. And um, uh, I did go to China. First time, actually, I got rejected by the Chinese. <laughs> they told me before I got on the boat from Japan that uh, they'd give me a visa when I got there. And then I got there, and someone else was working. And they were like, nah, you don't have enough money. And I was in robes. They didn't like that. <laughs> I had to go back to Japan. But the next year, um, after getting a visa in, in San Francisco, I took that same boat and actually got into Shanghai. <laughs> wow. I wow. uh, went to a, I had done a little research before and written a letter to a monastery. They were very happy to have me. I had to get it translated and everything because there wasn't much English. That's the main reason I was going was uh, the Kokoji was about half Westerners and there was quite a bit of English. So you could, you could chat and gossip in your free time. And we were, of course, encouraged not to, but we all did. And. Uh, I thought it might be good to be in a place where no one spoke English and I really <laughs> had nothing to do but, but practice. And uh, I visited several monasteries for, for a short, very short time, just a couple of days. And then I went to one that I was going to stay at for a little longer. Uh, really romantic. I mean, out in the woods, out in the, a mountaintop in the countryside and um, traditional, traditional spot. I think someone's made a little movie you can see on the internet about it. It's uh, um, Zhen, I don't know how to pronounce it right because Chinese is hard. Zhen Rushi was the temple name. The mountain was uh, Yunjushan. Yunjushan, cloud, cloud covered mountain. So this is uh, Yunju Daoying, I think. My memory is serving me. I haven't looked these things up in so long, but. Um, was uh, one of the main disciples of Dungshan, the founder of the Saodong lineage in China. So that was the site of his monastery. The, the actual building, I think, had been rebuilt not too long ago, but um, famous Zen site from classical golden age of Zen. And a big monastery, uh, one of the three or four at that time known in China in the late 90s to be, uh, to be reviving Zen practice, really authentic Zen practice. 
And it was, it was full on all day <laughs> sitting in the Zendo. Not everyone in the monastery is doing Zen. They're kind of universal Buddhist monasteries, but the Zen hall was like the special elite place. And um, some, some people sleeping in there. I got a separate room, which is nice. They were quite happy to have me. I was the only Westerner, very little English. And, uh, you know, they do some things differently than Japan. And so it was interesting to see what was different and what was really the same, what was the essence, you know. They're very informal there. They're very earthy. They laugh and smile and give you a big hug. And they're loud and they yell. <laughs> so all those things are quite different from Japan. But the practice was really strong. And, um, and yeah, I enjoyed it quite a bit. But I also... Um, It was probably a little much. I was pushing myself a little much and uh, not having anyone to speak to. Um, sometimes in, in stressful situations, I had experienced a little bit that I can, I can fall into some OCD tendencies. And um, I had had that on a little bit on the Korean retreat years ago, years before. And I didn't want that to happen again. And so I left uh, a little prematurely or earlier than I, I had planned to. And I uh, went to Hong Kong and then I did actually have a, a hard time in Hong Kong for a while with my mind. So um, I was saved by an airline attendant who uh, befriended me. She was a Buddhist, she studied Tibetan Buddhism, really wonderful woman who um, uh, could see I was having a hard time and thought, you know, to, to fulfill your vows, you have to take care of this and, and uh, you need to go home. And she flew me back as, a, as her guest on her next flight to San Francisco. So wow. it, was, uh, it was quite beautiful. Um, and I did, a, I still traveled around the States a little bit and did a couple more retreats with, with some other teachers that I was curious about that I hadn't met. But um, at that point, my kind of formal monastic thing was pretty much over. And uh, I wanted to see how, uh, how a dedication to presence practice and sitting practice um, and allied arts that I, I now engage in um, could function in our culture and could function outside the context of, of, a, of a formal monastery. And um, just exploring, I think. And, and that's what's, what it's been for the last uh, 20 years. I've mostly been in the Northwest, mostly in Portland. Um, I was pretty dedicated to continue to live really simply in the, in the, uh, in the mold of traditional renunciates. Whether I was formally considered a monk or not, I didn't really care anymore. Um, but uh, I, I wanted to see if I can live without, without an income, uh, which sometimes meant uh, you know, sleeping out in the rough. Although I, I tended to have places, some shelters, worked out for the rainy season at least. Um, and also I was doing, I got back into more formal environmental activism. I was doing some tree sitting, some, some old growth preservation work in the Northwest. And I was trying to bridge the two and teach meditation out there to the forest activists. And there was some interest in that. It was interesting, but it was a little hard, a little hard to bridge. Um, and uh, yeah, that's the kind of more exciting part of the story for the last 20 years. There's uh, less to tell about, but uh, I studied some various other arts that I wanted to supplement um, uh, 
a kind of more bare bones sitting practice with, especially out of the monastery when you don't have chanting as much and you don't have the kind of other things that are automatically part of it in the monastery. You know, even prostration practice, I now realize is a really interesting physical practice and uh, the chanting is, is uh, more substantial than I, than I had thought. Because sometimes in a monastery, you just feel, well, I'm doing those things, but the sitting is the real heart of it, at least in, the, in this end tradition, right? But, but I think those all have an interesting role to play. So uh, I've studied Tai Chi here, uh, a couple of different forms, and, and I, I practice that pretty regularly in Qigong. Um, and uh, Raga practice, which is the uh, Indian singing, well, Indian music practice, it's the basis of Indian classical music. They use these uh, modes called ragas. Um, the way I do it is, is just using the ragas as a kind of a meditation practice. So I don't develop it in, with the technical skills that you might in, uh, in uh, classical music training. But uh, I sing and, and, and play the flute with that. And I studied with a, a flute teacher for a little while and, uh, and a singing teacher. So those are kind of added to my repertoire. Um, and I started a Sunday sitting group many years ago. We usually meet outside. Um, so kind of combining with my nature interest and uh, a little, little challenging for some people in the winter. Not a lot of people joining us who <laughs> are wrapped in blankets and, um, but uh, more people joining in the summer sometime. Never really did much outreach. So it, it's, it's always stayed pretty small. Um, and informal. And uh, these days it's, it's pretty much sitting and some Qigong and then uh, kind of a satsang kind of uh, open-ended question and answer thing. And I do my best to give responses to people and other people can, can chime in. Um, so that's been going on for a long time. And as far as my activism, uh, I'm not doing so much direct action anymore stuff, but um, I try to join with, with some events when they're happening, especially with Extinction Rebellion recently, that's, that's a direct action group focusing on, on climate change. And uh, I think that's uh, a good place to go. But I think my, my focus on what you might call activism is, is just trying to live a life um, with the least impact as possible and model that for other people that we can live joyful, uh, fulfilling lives uh, by really radically reducing our impact and our culture is our, our usual ways of life in, in modern American culture is so dependent on destructive industries almost constantly from the, the electronic equipment we're using and the airplanes we use and the cars we use and just all the things we buy. I mean, those are the main things. And it is very hard to understand how to uh, let go of that. But it, seemed, it always seemed to me that spiritual practitioners, particularly in the Buddhist tradition, should be natural pioneers in that if we take the, the lessons to heart of our tradition, which is really that um, full contentment um, and joy and freedom from suffering exists in, in being fully awake of the present. That's where it comes from. It doesn't come from all those other things. So, we should be primed to be able to let go of those things easily than other people. And of course, the Buddha modeled that lifestyle. He lived intentionally homeless and with nothing and all his monks lived that way too. So it's, it's so clear in our early tradition, but the way Buddhism is generally transmitted in this country 
um, as the other Western countries and perhaps now also the Asian countries is kind of the philosophy and the meditation uh, specific practices kind of separated out from the lifestyle and the life, lifestyle we're living not challenged so much. So, you know, keep whatever job you want, very rarely challenged and um, maybe what you eat is challenged to some degree, but not so much. And money is not challenged so much. Um, and I think that loses a lot of, of the context. I mean, even in modern times, if you enter a monastery, your life has to simplify to some degree. And uh, certainly where I was in Japan, it was really, it was very simple. And none of us were buying anything, basically, <laughs> maybe a toothbrush. <laughs> and, uh, and we didn't need money. He, the teacher would give us money sometimes, so we'd have enough so we could leave. So we didn't feel economically <laughs> uh, trapped at, at the monastery. But, uh, you know, even though we collected alms on, on begging rounds, that just went to the monastery. And, such freedom with that lifestyle, such an ease, so beautiful, you know, and as I said, after a while, it felt too restrictive and I wanted to explore other things, which I think is natural, but um, just to have a set community, not worry about your social life, um, not worry about bills and finances and even healthcare, healthcare was covered if something came up, but, you know, and to be doing something every day that that resonated with your heart and to have an inspiring teacher around. It's, I mean, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing. I don't think it's restricted to just uh, formal training monasteries. I think you can get a lot of that beauty from other kind of spiritual communities or ashrams that might not have a, a very vigorous schedule. But uh, I think that's a big part of the beauty of, of monastic life is, is actually the community, the Sangha, in, in addition to what's usually talked about, which is just the practices or the teacher. So um, in my present life, I'm really uh, focused on how to create more, more Sangha because I, I am pretty isolated right now. Uh, I've been given a house to use for a while with the idea for Sangha and then coronavirus happened. So that ran into mm -hmm. some roadblocks. Um, but the isolation is difficult and it's even difficult for me. I've done a lot of things in my life alone, a lot of practices alone, some, some private retreats, which you know, can be very helpful. But, uh, but I'm feeling it and, and going through some rough mental times even and um, trying to be really open and sharing that with people. Mm. And uh, to me, Sangha is so, so crucial. Um, the warmth of, of realizing your, your, the, the significance of your body mind is really in how you're helping others. And that's also the, the easiest, I think, and most, maybe most profound way to really let go of self-concern is just involve yourself with others. You know? mm -hmm. So that, that bodhisattva vow. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's kind of my focus now. Okay, that was pretty long story. So it's a beautiful, beautiful answer. Thank you for sharing so much. Um, there's a lot in there. and. I think um, if I'm understanding you correctly from what you've said and also from your writings, it seems like you know you've done you know you've had for a long time this connection to nature and a desire to be involved in environmental activism, and you know you did Buddhist monastic training and were kind of exposed to some other traditions as well. It seems like 
if I'm understanding correctly, like now your life is not necessarily connected to a particular lineage, that you're just trying to live a simple life where you do practices and um, model simplicity for the world as a, as a kind of renunciate practitioner without uh, necessarily being tied to a specific lineage or tradition or even set of spiritual practices. You're just trying to live the life that seems best to you right now in your own sense of integrity. Does that, does that seem true? Yeah, yeah, sure. That's definitely true. Um, you know, I, there was a time where I, I was getting a little anti-lineage mm. and I still feel that, that um, for a lot of people, uh, it's definitely helpful if you're doing traditional practice in a lineage to really keep the question alive how much the lineage affiliation, the teacher affiliation um, has just become part of a, another ego structure, another part of your identity that you hold around and, and protect and defend. And, um, and I think it can be a big problem. That's not to say that it's necessarily a problem or that you can't let go of that and still practice within a lineage because it's practically helpful. But um, I know there's a lot of attachment to, to teachers and, and a particular way and um, I think uh, to really be free in the present we, we need to not even be so attached to our lineage and our teacher and um, you know competing ways and it, it's the great opportunity of our time and place there's so much difficult challenge about our time and place um, with uh, ecological destruction and technological control and Kind of isolation i think we all feel with community breakdown mm -hmm. more kind of urban capitalist society um, so there's a lot of challenges but perhaps the most beautiful positive is all these cultures come together all these different traditions are available to us um, at least to learn about maybe in, in some deep way they're not they're harder to to uh, really pummel uh, really dig into the depths of them and in another time but um, we're exposed to so many of these and we can see the commonality of them and and how how they all express the same kind of beauty and connection and dropping of self in different ways and for different people and um, you know there's so much there's so much beauty in the sushi tradition you know and uh and being a musical person, being interested in music, I, I just, you know, I, I resonate with that so much. And the Japanese chanting tradition, I, I love that too. And there's a certain wonderful energy in it, but it, actually, <laughs> it doesn't do the same thing for me. Or that it doesn't get the emotions in the same way, you know, including the emotions. And I was talking recently to, to a Christian a practitioner who has kind of a deeper contemplative side of, of Christianity. And, and actually, I've known, I've known and appreciated that side for a while because I once did a retreated a place in Austria that was co-founded by brother David Stumdoras, this great uh, Benedictine mystic. He had a connection to, to someone in Copen's lineage and uh, really appreciated his stuff. And um, there's, a, there's an angle to the same subject that, that, that they use that you don't find as pronounced in Buddhism, just like Buddhism has an angle that's not as pronounced in, in Christian contemplative practice or Sufism or, uh, you know, the non-dual, less traditional tradi tradition, you call it that, that I've, I've been uh, 
I've been enriched by recently listening to people like Rupert Spira, uh, who's uh, very articulate in, in presenting presence in a, in a way a little different from Buddhism. Um, and uh, some other teachers. I like Lisa Karen's a lot. He's just very untraditional in many ways, you know. And uh, um, there's a kind of uh, an honesty and freedom and acceptance of all these different these different forms that I find enriching. I mean, I have to say right now in my life, I'm, I'm trying to work on a kind of broadening and acceptance because um, the downside of living, you know, a lot of people have given me a lot of appreciation and, and um, uh, um, respect for, for the, the degree that I live a simple life, that I don't use cars and planes and, um, you know, use money very sparingly and all that. And I'm happy about that on the one hand, but on the other hand, it's, you know, I understand the main reason people don't do it isn't, I don't think isn't because, because they love comfort so much. There's a little bit of that. I don't think that's the strongest thing. Um, habit, just habit is a big part of it for sure. But I actually think the biggest thing that keeps people from radically changing their life is the isolation. Is that people, we're social creatures and we want to do what the people around us are doing. And if, if changing our life is going to make us just not included in, in so many groups, it's really hard psychologically. And I'm feeling that probably more than I have before. And uh, so in a certain sense, I feel like I have to let go of some of that. You know? And we, make, we can make our identity out of anything. And I've certainly made an identity for myself out of living really simply. And that needs to be challenged too. It's not that living simply isn't beautiful, but being attached to it is not beautiful. <laughs> and making an identity about it is not beautiful. And being inflexible is not beautiful. And the inevitable feeling that other people aren't included, even though it's not your conscious intention, of course, everyone's included and I accept everyone. You can say that consciously to yourself. But when you're living a certain way that's pretty radical, it's, it's very hard to, at least it's been hard for me, not on some deep subconscious emotional level, not to feel really separate, you know? Hmm. And um, that's kind of my work now, you know, how to, how to keep a, uh, an inspirational model that's different from the mainstream when, when the mainstream obviously has some unwholesome components or a lot of unwholesome components, but how to also really accept those unwholesome components you might work to try to change them, but you also have to really accept them. And, and certainly you have to accept the people caught up in them. Um, and of course, we're all caught up in them to various degrees in various ways, but uh, any, any deep change, any deep positive change for our culture going forward, I think has to come ultimately from a place of joy and inclusivity and uh, freedom. So if you're not feeling that, you're not going to be the best vessels for making that change. And so that's that's something we all have to keep in mind, I think. Hmm. Hmm. I'd be curious to ask you like um, uh, a somewhat simple question, but to hear your sense of it or how you would describe it. Um, it's really the same question, but from two angles of like, one, how do you understand what spiritual practice is and what it's aiming for? or working towards? And then sort of similarly, um, how do you right now understand the problems that we're facing ecologically and environmentally? Um, how do you perceive that problem and understand it? Yeah, 
Um, I mean, what is spiritual practice? <laughs> it's always nice with those big questions to go to, to go to etymology a little. So spiritus is, I think, the Latin for breath, something like that, breathing, which is, which is quite nice because it's just the intimate thing that's happening in the moment, pretty much always. So you're doing some Wim Hof thing or some Kundalini yoga thing and holding your breath for a while. It still involves breath. So. Um, and religion also is a nice word, even though it has some not so nice connotations these days, but you know, reconnection basically means reconnection to the whole, you might say. So um, for me, coming from coming from a contemplative meditative tradition, I would just say spiritual practice is when you when you enter presence. Well, not when you enter presence, but it's the direction of your life of, of turning toward presence. And um, presence meaning awareness itself when free, seeing the freedom from our thoughts. These are the thoughts that that create the self is the, is the central thought that, that causes the weight and burden. So entering into awareness so that we feel the freedom from our thoughts, even though our thoughts continue. And uh, I think pretty much all the contemplative traditions will, will correspond to that. They might call that a vision of God or transcendence of the self or whatever whatever you might have. So, um, so many ways. I would say when people talk about being in the zone and, and um, you know, in sports, in intense sports or intense artistic, particularly the performance arts, but maybe all the arts, um, or sex, or what are the other things that bring us into presence easily for most culture? I mean, I don't know if sex does most of the time for a lot of people or, or for a very short, short amount of time. But um, anyway, all those things, you know, I consider that legitimate presence and the freedom and joy you feel is, is, is legitimate. I, I think the difference with spiritual practice is um, you recognize that as a direction for your life and you recognize that as something to, to being open to access anytime, not being connected to a particular activity. And so we still use particular activities like sitting, but they, they get more and more minimal <laughs> so that, so that they can be, it can be a more and more universal experience. Um, so anything one does uh, to help you enter into presence, but specifically that, that is, is leading you to not be dependent on that one activity, but leading you to, to approach a presence all the time. I would call spiritual practice. So the understanding that you can approach it all the time is the wisdom aspect. We call the samadhi aspect, the, the actual generally temporary experience of it. Um, that was the what spirituality. What was the next part? <laughs> I can't remember. Sort of a similar thing, but um, just how do you currently see the environmental and ecological problems that we're facing? How do you make sense of those or understand them? Yeah. You know, from the biggest picture of acceptance, it's, it's just what the universe needs to do. 
It's just mm. how it's happening. And it needs mm. to be accepted on that level or else we're always going to be, <laughs> we're always going to be upset about it. I mean, some mm. level of emotional set is fine. We, it's, it's what the body does. It's, it's the relative realm is part of our consciousness. And um, when a friend gets hurt, we feel sad. And when nature gets destroyed, we feel sad. We're at all sensitive. And um, when we're faced with the extinction of so many creatures and possible human extinction, that's sad and it should be sad and we should do something about it. But on another level, we have to also see it's all nature. It's all part of it. And that's been hard for me, you know, because those of us who are very sensitive about environmental issues get very attached to needing to stop them. But I don't think that attachment help, makes us better change makers, actually. It doesn't make it stop. We just get more frustrated, maybe more despairing, maybe give up, you know, more. So, so on the one level, the ultimate level, we have to understand it is, as we're all nature. We're always all nature. Everything human beings do is nature. There's only nature. And, and it's all okay. Um, and yet, you know, the quote from Suzuki Roshi, we're perfect as we are, and yet we could use some improvement. <laughs> so the side that we're perfect as we are needs to be, needs to be touched uh, if, we're, if we're not going to suffer. But also, we live out our human lives responding to the most natural emotions we have to, to help beings, the bodhisattva activity, you know. It's that bodhisattva role of, of one foot in equanimity and one foot in compassionate action and ultimately it's not something you can figure out or, or chart or map right intellectually i mean you can but it's, <laughs> it's so helpful ultimately it's just some balance you have to discover kind of from your own heart and um so certainly we can see that that the environmental destruction as it's happening is is being led from the essential spiritual ignorance um, of humanity that that true satisfaction and joy is in presence, is in awareness, and we always have it. And instead, we think it's in getting things. And you know, most practically speaking, that that turns in in our present culture that turns into money. And most of the in, in the in the relative, you know, maybe not the deepest sense, but in the in the in the functional sense, conventionally functional sense. The desire for money generally of people who have so much money already that they don't know what to do with it. Um, they couldn't possibly spend it, but they still have it's an obsession. It's a it's a it's a kind of a mental disorder. And I think it should be recognized as that. That uh, once you have the habit of always wanting to acquire more money, even though you have so much you can't use it, you just want to acquire more and you're willing to destroy the whole earth for it. Mm. I don't think people in those positions of power are thinking they're destroying the earth, but you know, they must be aware on some level that that's what's happening. So it's that essential feeling of dissatisfaction and lack that we're trying to fill with money or power or entertainment or whatever it is that leads us to, to have developed this lifestyle that's, that's so hard on the planet. And um, at this point, a lot of it's just led by habit. You know, it's what we grew up with. It's what the people around us are doing. So it's got its own cycle that's just uh, continuing. And, and when we're told everything that you do in your regular daily life, everything you buy, at least, you know, um, every energy use you use is, is destroying the planet. It's overwhelming. And, and 
we don't see people around us doing something much different. So we just, we just have to go into denial or, you know, look for technological solutions or look for halfway measures that will slowly reduce our through tech, through, through whatever will slowly reduce our impact, but that when you're honest and look at what the science saying is not going to be nearly enough. So really radical lifestyle change is what's necessary to make a, a serious impact. But it's, it's psychologically really hard to do. So that's, that's the place we're at. And so I think spirituality can, spiritual practices of all, all kinds can be so much, could be such a help to that. But when I see mostly how they're offered, they kind of, most teachers and, and centers shy away from really challenging people on their lifestyle stuff. So I, there's this idea that, well, people will just, you know, if they just meditate or, or do whatever their practice is and, and discover a letting go of self, they'll be more primed to simplify their life and drop, drop a lot of the destructive habits and it'll be easier. And maybe that's true. I mean, it's certainly true to some extent, I guess you could say, but I have my doubts. I think, um, I think meditation practice and non-dual teaching and this kind of thing, they're beautiful in themselves and they certainly can lead to a lot of relief, psychological relief, but, um, to go deeply with it, to see all its implications and how you would live a different life if you're really unattached to the things that we're emotionally attached to and habitually attached to. That really has to be pointed out by teachers or taught in some way, I think, or exemplified at least. And if that's not being done, then I don't know if these traditional religious practices are gonna lead people to, be, uh, to, to make that kind of change. So I don't know how to do it, you know, I'm, I'm trying to model that life. And as I said, also trying to balance it with acceptance and um, inclusivity, a sense of including people, not being too steep for people when they're coming to it. And, um, you know, also go out to the streets when there's some community doing that, you know, Extinction Rebellion has done some wonderful things. And um, the last one that was here in Portland, still really small in the state, so that they've had some, some uh, impressive numbers in England. But uh, the small thing I went to recently in Portland was, was quite beautiful, you know. I helped bring food to it because I work with uh, Food Not Bombs, this group that, that collects food that would otherwise might go to waste and just distributes it in parks regularly every week, a couple times a week. So we also bring it to some of these actions. And um, there was a lot of good uh, smiles and... Um, uh, energy and so even you know who knows what it'll accomplish if anything but uh at least it's a good way to reach out to community and uh, express our emotional pain and what's going on and also express our, our need to connect with each other and help each other and uh and maybe to start sharing ways we can live that's different and you never know if something suddenly takes off i mean people changed their lives quite quickly with coronavirus because they were afraid of the virus or afraid of who knows why social stigma if they didn't follow the rules but um people did change their life quite a bit so if somehow people become aware of the severity of the climate situation particularly the extinction crisis and biodiversity crisis all the rest of it which is so intimately related as is the psychological crisis our culture has had and our lack of community i mean it's also deeply and social justice and civil rights of course it's also deeply intertwined um, but some fights are easier to jump on i mean black lives matter for 
a lot of people I think is easier to jump on because even even a lot of white people, although there's there's quite a bit of white guilt, I think I, I think even a lot of white people can kind of say, well, it's those it's those racist cops, it's those other people, and of course, well we'll go yell at how bad they are. <laughs> but with climate change, you have to look at your own life and say, I have to change my life. I'm contributing to it. Of course, you can say it's all the corporations, but, and, and that's a fine angle to do activism with. I'm not saying not to do that. And of course, most of the pollution is coming from corporations, but the corporations are making things for you to buy. That's why it's happening. <laughs> so it's not like they're on their own planet doing their destruction and it has nothing to do with us. So we have to, we have to look to ourselves and, um, Obviously, I do believe spiritual revolution in ourselves is crucial. Uh, but I think maybe not the, just the direct practices that are being offered at most centers today. I don't know if that has a, enough direct line to the kind of lifestyle change that, that I see is necessary for averting some of these catastrophic things that are in, in the pipeline. I mean, really in the very near term, it's 10 years. But as I said, on the other hand, we have to be okay with it. And uh, more people will join positive movements if we smile, if we dance. You know, I went to a dance thing. It's just, there's this dance community on a, at a park nearby here. And uh, I didn't used to go to these things, but after this COVID time and the isolation, I feel I was like, I gotta get to something. <laughs> and I used to love to dance, you know, so, mm -hmm. um, but I don't do it much. And uh, it was great. Mm. It was great. There's some mm. great quote from some activist. Is it Emma Goldman or something that uh, if you can't dance, I don't want to be part of your revolution. Something mm. like that. Mm. Anyway, uh, I think that's true. You have to dance and your dance might be sitting practice and Tai Chi or, or, or whatever, but uh, might be good to actually include some dancing. <laughs> I'm, I'm all about I mean, the sitting dance, personally. Practice that I happen to love, but but you got to balance the the silence and the stillness with some uh, some noise and some music and some moving too. I think definitely mm -hmm. community. I mean, there's beautiful times to be alone when you're feeling strength with that. But I think the the real power of being alone is realizing you're never alone. Mm -hmm. To discover that is the point of private retreat. I think. You know, you sit in the woods alone, you're like, oh my God, everything, everything. Yeah. You know, the clouds, the trees, it's, you're never apart from it. Once uh, my teacher, Coben, said, because um, he liked to do a lot of alone practice and he used to t advocate it, actually, which is pretty rare in Zen circles. And Zen circles are mostly like, mostly advocating together, together practice, right? It's a Chinese cultural thing. But um, he said, you go, you go on private retreat because you separate yourself from other people and from community. And it's like a rubber band. You're stretching a rubber band and it gets more and more intense as you go farther and farther out until eventually the power of it becomes so clear that it just brings you back. And that power is love. It's really to clarify love that you go away, not to get away from people. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's fine to get away from the distraction temporarily for that. It's all about it's all about our belonging ultimately, and that's what our heart wants, and really making that clear. And I think we have to work on that our whole lives, as long as we're in these apparently appearing separate bodies. Uh, that 
clarifies a lot for me. I've um, been feeling really called to dance recently in the last mm -hmm. months and I'm like, oh, now I know why. So thank yeah. you for that. Um, yeah. I, I do wanna, I, you know, you mentioned that in a lot of centers and traditions, uh, you know, there isn't this, uh, you know, like questioning of lifestyle and practices and that you think that, um, you know, radical intervention and uh, lifestyle change is necessary for solving these problems at the consumer level. And um, I, wanna, I wanna ask you about that, but first, can, can you say um, just, you know, what, what are the interventions that you're recommending, what that people take up or, or some of them? Like, um, you know, you alluded to this earlier that you, um, you know, don't drive places and you don't use planes and you try to use money sparingly. What are some of the other things that you're really recommending to people and um, suggesting that people take up if they do care about the planet and, and are willing to make changes in their life? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I don't think it's it's a big mystery. Everyone has different strategies about how to introduce it and how slow to go or how fast to go. And I have not much to say. I mean, yeah, it's, it's different for every individual and um, every karma. And I think a deep understanding and non-judgmentalism is really important. Actually, to be honest, I'm a little, I don't like using that word judgmentalism because we always make judgments. Whenever we're not in samadhi, we're making a judgment, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Whenever we're not in total choiceless presence, we're making judgments. And that's fine. That's what our mind does. I think when people say don't be judgmental, what they really mean is don't put me down. Don't devalue me, right? Don't um, belittle me or, or show me care and concern. Mm -hmm. So I think we have to remember whatever our judgments might be to really try to show care and concern and love. And I'm totally guilty of, of making people feel not included and, and not respected um, because of how strong I can get about, you know, it feels like concern for spreading this message and changing the world, you know. Um, but we've got to find a way to spread it with, with, the concern and love for the other person as part of the package. Yeah. So, um, I, you know, the actual steps to take, I think, are, are pretty clear. In terms of our personal life, we all have to drive much less. We all have to use much less fossil fuels in general. So that the other major use might be heating your home um, and flying, of course. Um, and then buying stuff. I mean, especially electronics, which we're all addicted to now. You know, I'm using it and I don't tell anyone not to use it. Um, I don't have a phone, it's true, but I've been thinking about getting one, but I would get a used one that someone else is discarding, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, all the computers I use are are, uh, are ones that, that people have moved on from <laughs> you know, getting used ones. And there's a lot of those. So you can do, you can, you can improve on those situations, but, um, you know, just to create one computer uses an unbelievable amount of resources and water and all of that. Um, and then what we eat is another big one. So the less animals we can eat, uh, you know, it's pretty clear it's better for the environment. There's people that will argue there's regenerative agriculture that says, oh, it's needed for permaculture and stuff to have animals. But those arguments don't seem to hold much water. I mean, there's better ways to have animals in worse ways and we can transition, but the, the, the less animals we, we depend on, um, we can use less land. We, we actually grow less plants if we're not raising animals, even if we're eating all plants. And uh, you know, the, the emissions result is, is much less, aside from the whole ethical 
issue of, of cruelty to animals and and uh, also the health issue, which which I've done some study of, and I'm pretty convinced it's healthier to eat less animal products, but that's endlessly controversial. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I shouldn't get into. Um, so yeah, more plant-based diet, less cars, less fossil fuels in general, put a sweater on instead of heating your home, buy less stuff, especially intense stuff like electronics and cars, of course, and big stuff. Um, uh, of course, Try to not do plastic packaging. I haven't bought plastic packaging in, in more than 20 years. Of course, it's easier for me if you live in a more progressive place that has stores that sell in bulk, then that's easier. And if you don't have a place, of course, you know, you have to make some compromises. You're going to eat the way our culture is set up. But, you know, whatever you can grow yourself, whatever you can get in bulk. And uh, uh, what else? Flying, I mentioned. Um, so those are the personal things or, or some of them anyway, I might be missing some, and those have to change what, what some people who are trying to, in some ways, I think are rightly pointing out that we shouldn't put the weight on ourselves and blame ourselves for participating in this system when it's being engineered to some degree by corporations, largely through advertising and, and, or just from owning a market and not giving you any alternatives, you know, and the government supporting those corporations and doing those practices. So it's true that the, some of the big decisions are made by those corporations and the government. But it's also true that we all have to stop participating in them. And so it becomes a question of strategy, whether you're going to try to spread it on the grassroots as a personal lifestyle change thing, or whether you're going to try to um, petition the government and corporations or do activism, direct action against corporations and the government to make them change but ultimately that means we're basically forcing the rest of us to change our lifestyle (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know because they and we can make it easier for the rest of us to change our lifestyle but by forcing the corporations to give alternatives you know um, to not put things in disposable plastic packaging to to uh, uh, make alternatives to food more widely available um to make public transportation more widely available so we don't feel the need to use cars as much. That's all totally true. But even in places that have a lot of public transportation available, people still are attached to their cars. So those habits have to be broken somehow. Whether it's we the people do it ourselves amongst ourselves, which to me is kind of more beautiful, or whether we get the government to make policy to require the rest of the population to do it, which seems less beautiful to me, but might be what's more practically um, workable in the short term. It seems like if we're going to, to the extent we're going to heal and not create as much destruction as we could, I think all of these paths will have to be used. So we'll have to petition the government, we'll have to petition corporations, we'll have to do boycotts, we'll have to do marches, and we'll have to change our lifestyle, and we'll have to educate each other, and we'll have to really uh, make it easier to change our lifestyle. And we'll have to do spiritual practice so that we're psychologically equipped to deal with the changes that are going to happen. I think it's much easier to deal with changing your lifestyle intentionally than to, than to have to deal with, you know, it's one day the supermarkets don't have food on their shelves because of droughts all over the place. And then what are we going to do? People are going to freak out. Mm-hmm. People are going to freak out anyway for what's mm-hmm. coming down the pike. And um, the more we're ready and flexible 
and can find our source of joy in just presence and our creating community and our already learning how to love each other and how to understand and how to deal with each other's psychological disturbance, the more prepared we're going to be when that stuff happens. So all of those paths, all of those paths. And I include them all in spiritual practice. You know, it's also related. Once you, once you really have a taste of presence is everything, then your habits are, at least intellectually, you realize my habits shouldn't be a big deal. And we still have emotional attachment, but we can still we can start working on letting them go. And, um, and then if we really have that contentment and acceptance, we can bring that kind of positive attitude to the people around us that are really suffering. And um, then we're forming community. And once we have community, people can change their habits much quicker. Like I said before, we want to do what the people around us are doing. And if we enter a community, even of 20, 30 people, even of 10 people, even of five people who are doing things in a more wholesome way, it's so much easier for us to do that than if we don't know anyone. I mean, that's super hard. You know? There's just very few of us that radically change our lives when we don't know anyone doing that around us. You know, I've done it a little bit in my life, but it's hard for me too. You know? And uh, so forming communities of change are so, so important. I mean, the more, the, the older I get and, and experience with practice, if, if that's happening, <laughs> if I'm not regressing, I don't know. Um, the more I realize Sangha is really the center of it. It's really the center. The Buddha is, is some carrot on a stick that you know, inspires us at the beginning, gets us going forward. You know, we think about our potential for awakening. And the Dharma is very helpful to have certain practices if we call practices the Dharma and also teachings, you know, to hear things word and so. But it's all kind of beginning for me. Really, it's Sangha. It's, it's when we realize we're interconnected with everyone and our field of practice is really loving and caring for each other, which includes caring for the earth, of course. Um, when, we, when we understand who we really are, it's, it's, we're all those things. That's all part of awareness. It's, it's our very bodies. And to know that and to embrace it and to sing with it and to dance with it is what our hearts really want. And, uh, you know, when people are, are not doing that and are cutting it down, our hearts, our hearts respond. Um, yeah. So that's very general, but mm, the actual helpful. strategy, who knows? Nobody knows. <laughs> it's, we're suddenly put into this crash course, right? <laughs> we don't have a lot of time. Mm. And uh, I do think people should at least recognize big changes are happening. And um, our usual, our usual lifestyles are not going to cut it. Our usual spiritual practices are not going to cut it. That doesn't mean they're not great and we won't still do them, but they're not sufficient enough for this time and place. And our usual communities are not going to do it. We have to make our communities more resilient and, uh, more ready for what's going to happen. Um, And uh, we just have to be open to new inspiration. Everything's transforming, you know. Even if it's just all these traditions coming together, you know, that's that's our that's our wonderful. As I said earlier in the interview, that's a that's our wonderful light from this time amidst all the dangers. Um, I think something more resilient and more universal can emerge from all these traditions mixing and sharing with each other and, 
and I was finally seeing what's the kernel, you know, and realizing it's not the dogma, it's not the things that separate each group from each other. You spoke to this to some extent, but um, I'd be curious to hear you speak about it a little bit more of, um, I noticed as I was preparing for this conversation, uh, reading your, your work, uh, the biggest sort of objection that came up in me, and I'm, you spoke to it again today and in some of your writings as well, but is, is sort of like, um, Okay, the, these changes seem good, yeah. But how how is it that if I make changes in my own life, that's going to actually solve these enormous, complex, systemic, global problems? If I choose not to fly, or choose not to drive, or uh, you know, go without heat, or you know, don't use plastic, or things like that, how how is it brought about that that's that's the first step in that direction? Yeah, I know. That's a tricky one. I mean, it's, it's on one level, it's just the, it's just the same question as like voting, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, how is my one vote going to, you know, there's millions of people voting. How is my one vote going to change? So I won't vote. And then a lot of people do that. Half the country doesn't vote <laughs> and it makes a huge difference. You know? mm -hmm. So one of it is just recognizing you're one drop in the ocean and the ocean is made of drops. And that's the objection I, I have when some people say, oh, it's not personal change, it's the corporations. So they're kind of saying it, it's not the drops that make the ocean. It's, it's, there's a separate ocean and then there's us, the drops, and we're different. But that's not really true. I mean, it is the drops that make the ocean. There are, I don't know how, how to extend this metaphor <laughs> beyond its usefulness, but there are some drops that seem to make more decisions than, than others. Um, and corral the other drops in certain directions and we should address that for sure you know advertising is a, is a huge thing and, and the danger of advertising and it's now expanding right through online stuff and, and through data mining and, and we have to be aware of that i remember reading once in a Taoist book this was probably back in college when i was studying these these things academically uh there's a wonderful book called Taoism: the parting of the ways by Holmes Welch, I think. I don't, this stuff stays in my mind. I can't remember friends' names off on the mm. street, but mm. 20 years, 30 years ago. Um, anyway, uh, he had an afterword that was more imaginative than the rest of the book um, about what, what it would be like if he met Laozi on the street, you know, mm. and what Laozi would say. And he had Laozi first saying, I don't want to talk at all. Let's just be in silence, you know. And then the, the Holmes Welch character, the author character, would, would, say, come on, you know, leave something for us. We need some more information, more than the Tao Te Ching, because now we're in a new time. We need it updated, right? And he said, okay, well, if I have to say something, the worst thing going on in your culture is advertising. Mm. <laughs> it's, it's creating nuance to people. And what our spiritual practice, I think that the core of, of all true contemplative spiritual practice is, is um, you know, realizing that desire is that illusion that we have what we need. We have it in awareness. We don't need something else. And advertising is committed to getting us to want something else always and more and more and more and more. So yeah, I mean, if we could change the advertisers that would help the, a lot more than any other one person or <laughs> group of people, you know, but that's hard. I don't know how to do it. There's, mm -hmm. there's, um, I guess there's, there's various, uh, various kinds of activism we can do, but spreading the word and, and, and uh, 
trying to give counter examples, but it's hard, you know. We use this media to spread, and everyone says, oh, the internet is so great, it's democratizing everything, and, and it can be used that way, and you can spread really good information, but once people get attached to it, most of the stuff on there is more advertising. <laughs> most of the stuff on there is not necessarily wholesome. And, uh, and the, the algorithms are trying to steer you to the things that they make money from, not to the things that tell you not to buy stuff, right? So mm -hmm. it's tricky, it's a tricky medium. But uh, um, so on one level, you just have to say, well, it's gonna take all of us changing. I mean, the mass of, of pollution comes from all of us using these things that create it. So we have to change. Um, but if you just change yourself and then don't try to spread the word, then yeah, you're changing one, one part of 7 billion. It's pretty small, <laughs> you know? Um, although if you live in wealthy countries like we do, I mean, we should keep in mind 80% of the population still doesn't fly in planes of the world population. So we have enormously more impact than a lot of people. So it's not necessarily one in 7 billion, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but it's one in maybe 3 billion anyway. So mm -hmm. it's still pretty big. Um, so getting the word out is crucial, um, whether it's first to our friends, forming, helping form communities and trying to make the community a model. And then those communities can attract larger numbers of people. Or if you feel like you have access to reaching larger number of people through the internet or whatever, maybe that's great. You know, I kind of, I watch this guy, uh, Russell Brand sometimes on the internet. Do you know who he is? I've heard of him. I have not watched anything from him, but yeah. he, he rose to fame being kind of an outrageous comedian basically in mm -hmm. England mm -hmm. and, uh, um, you know, breaking kind of a lot of taboos and his outrageousness and, uh, um, but also being very, very bright, uh, very smart, very quick. He wasn't very well educated. He's from a working class background, but he was, you know, taught himself a lot, but he was a drug addict and all this stuff. So he eventually, um, recovered from that and, uh, started to get more serious in his, he would use his fame. He would go on these talk shows and he was in movies and stuff like that. So he would be on a lot of the talk shows and he was very funny. So people liked him, but he started challenging the whole thing about talk shows and certainly the whole thing about fame and how it hadn't satisfied him. And uh, he had tasted it and it was a sour taste and um, money too. And he started experimenting with meditation and, and spiritual practice and really starting to advocate that, but it was on like the talk shows. You don't hear about that very much, you know? Hmm. So it was an interesting cultural phenomenon. And he got more and more in, into his recovery, the 12-step thing, but making it a little less traditional 12-step and more kind of universal spiritual approach. And wrote some books on it. And um, so now he's not so mainstream famous. He still gets on some of the talk shows occasionally, but he mostly has podcasts and, and uh, YouTube content. And he really advocates, you know, quite a bit of radical things and tries to use whatever left of his fame for that. And uh, he has two channels. One is challenging kind of corporate capitalism and the other is about spiritual practices. You know, he's mostly in the kind of uh, Kundalini yoga and TM tradition, but uh, he's interviewed Eckhart Tolle and these kind of people quite a bit. So, you know, someone like that, I mean, he has millions of followers, so. But he also really listens to his mail and stuff. So one person can, can reach people like that sometimes and you never know how it expands. So yeah, if you just change your lifestyle and you're a hermit and you don't really care about talking to anyone, it's gonna be pretty limited. <laughs> but we are embedded in a wider world, whether it's actual interpersonal connections, which you don't know how it can spread or whether it's the internet um, or whether it's organizing you do. Um, 
But yeah, we should be thinking about that. I am one person. But if, if we use that to be like, well, I'm not even going to change myself. Well, then we're not, we know we're not doing anything. If we change ourselves, okay, one tiny drop has changed. It's pretty minimal. But we know people and they see how we live. It's going to affect at least 30, 40 people, even if you're really private and not making any effort. And then those can affect other people. But if you do make an effort, you might reach a lot of people, depending on how skilled you are with internet stuff. I'm not, so far, I'm really unskilled in that realm. And I don't think I'm reaching very many people. But I'm always, and maybe it's not my job. Maybe someone I reach will be the person who reaches more people. But I'm also open to hearing how we can do that. I mean, but yeah, we want to affect as many people as we can. I mean, that's what love is. I mean, just with our practice, that's what we want to do too, you know? you get awakened and then you're like oh i have no no i have no suffering personally now i'm going to go sit in the cave for the rest of my life you know the buddha we have that in the buddha story right he did it for a couple of weeks and then it, indra or maybe it's brahm brahma i always thought it was indra but some stories have brahma anyway someone some god comes and and says try try some people have start with the people you were working with before they have just a little dust in their eyes right mm-hmm. that's a really important story and, you know, Indra or Brahma is, is a part of our mind, the compassion part of our mind that arises and says, okay, now I have to take this out because otherwise it's not really enlightenment then, you know? And the tradition has the word, what, Pratyeka Buddha for that, where you're a soul oh, yeah. enlightened Buddha, but they kind of, at least the Mayana looks down on it, right? And they should because it's not a Buddha. It's a misunderstanding of awakening. It's a misunderstanding of freedom because Real freedom, you recognize I'm not a person. I'm not anything. I'm this whole universe. And what pops into this whole universe, all these other beings, and we just love them because they're our universe. And um, so we have to do that spiritually, aside from strategy. We have to do that. And, uh, but strategically, that's necessary too because nothing will change, like you said, if it's just one. But one person changing is already is already more than one person changing. We just don't recognize that because we're so consumed with me, right? That's right. the essential spiritual problem. We think, well, I've changed my thing and it's just about me. But no, it's not. It didn't even happen because of your personal choice. You know, you can understand that. I'm embedded in something moving that's universal and beyond my conceptual understanding. So let it happen. You know, let it happen. Stay open and stay sensitive. And then it just happens. Uh, yeah we'll discover how it spreads so so we can in fact make changes to ourselves that's something that we actually can do as opposed to you know other things which we should do but are much harder and uh and similarly when we make changes for ourselves that touches everyone in our life and we can uh you know um, intentionally cultivate that where we reach out to people and, and share what we're doing and the changes that we're making and educate and learn and, and exchange things that and that that will help it to spread is, is that totally. kind of how you see it yeah yeah except that you know the way you said it is the conventional relative way and that's how we usually think about things mm-hmm. um that person <laughs> choice is the choice i can make uh-huh. but ultimately yes. you're not making any choice <laughs> where mm-hmm. did it come from you know mm. ultimately you can't even make your own choice because there's no you there. So the ultimate perspective is um, 
you don't want to let the ego use it as an excuse. Oh, well, if I can make any choice, I'm going to make all the bad choices. <laughs> no, you're, st- mm. you're still thinking you're making choices. You're just making hedonistic choices and they won't bring you satisfaction. They won't bring you true freedom. So that hopefully won't last too long. Um, and realizing that there's no separate self means that it's not really up to me to find out how to reach all those other people. It's fine to conventionally think that. And if you get some great idea like, oh, I'm going to make a YouTube channel. I'm going to make a podcast like you're doing. That's great. Do it. You know, especially if there's joy there. That's mm-hmm. the universe working through you in that way. We, we feel like we're making choices. But ultimately, it's good to remember that it's beyond us. It's beyond us. Our personal choices are beyond us. And the way that it spreads is beyond us. And how it's going to happen is beyond us. So then what we're left with is we can use our figuring mind to a certain degree, but ultimately it's pretty limited and we have to surrender to really our heart. What, what I would say was a heart now saying our heart is a vague word, but that's what you have to do. You have to go to a vague word because it's not conceptually controlled and um, we should do what's joyful. You know, that's ultimately what I've often said when people ask about decision problems. And I have problems with decision too, so it's not like I'm free of this. Mm-hmm. But, um, and I can get OCD about my decisions. I mean, it's a mess sometimes. Mm-hmm. But uh, but ultimately I say, you, you know, do a reasonable amount of thinking if you think that's actually called for which in a lot of difficult decisions, it's not called for. You've already done all the thinking you can do about it. It's just, it's just uh, uh, bouncing around in your head at that point. But if there's some knowledge accumulation to do, go ahead and collect that. But then ultimately, do what's the most beautiful step. Just ask yourself, what's the most beautiful step I can make? And beauty is another one of those vague words. But that means it takes you out of your, your intellectual control. Because at some point, you realize this is not... You know, if it's a hard decision, it's probably, you're probably getting to that point where your intellect can balance it on both sides and it doesn't have much more role to do. So at that point, what does your heart say? What is the most beautiful step you can take? Not the easiest, but also not necessarily the hardest. Some people are like that. I always want to do the hardest thing, right? Not the most comfortable, not necessarily the most uncomfortable, but what's the most beautiful thing? And maybe nothing will come up, but I think it's a good, it's a good way to pose it for yourself and, and see what resonates. Um, because you're asking, you're asking something deeper than your intellect to make the decision. And you're also asking, what will lead to freedom? That's another way to put it. What will be the most freeing feeling thing? Because that's what you're going to do for joy and for love. And that's what's going to be the most effective. I really believe that. Um, some people ask me about like training, like hard training or whatever. And uh, you know, I used to be pretty advocating of it. And now I'm definitely, I step back and I have no idea what's best for people, you know, in terms mm-hmm. of what will advance them in their spiritual practice. For some people, it's traditional hard training, but for some people it's not. That can lead to breakdowns and, you know, uh, ego attachment and all kinds of things. So what I really think is do what you really love. Do what you really love, which is not the same as do what's easy or do what you happen to have a whim about, you know, mm-hmm. or is mildly entertaining. But try to find what's, what you really love in a deep way. If you really love traditional training, which I did for a while, it's beautiful and it'll be transformative. But, but if you don't, or if that changes, it probably won't be. Mm-hmm. You know? 
it might be a drag and you have all kinds of guilt and shame and I haven't pushed myself hard enough. That's why I haven't broken through and blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. I mean, just find what you love. And the same with activism. You know, if you love doing it, it's going to be a beautiful thing. It doesn't even matter what happens with it. If you love th that action you did with this group of people, you don't need to know whether it so-called failed or succeeded. It succeeded because it created beauty in the world and it influenced people in some way. And you don't know how that goes off into the world and how that affects things. It's beyond our thinking mind. So that's something that, that really we can learn from our non-dual spiritual practice that really can help us in activism is just do what you love, do what your heart says, and then let go of the consequences because we know that it's beyond our, our thinking mind. Hmm. Hmm. Well, um, I really appreciate you sharing all of this. And I think there's about a billion things more that I could ask you and um, also that others wanted to, uh, me to ask you. But I think there's also a lot to chew on here. Uh, and so it might be good to sort of wind down. And I just wanna extend you the uh, opportunity if there's anything else that you feel might be important to share given everything that we have talked about or something, um, you know, maybe anything that you'd like to point people to of your own work or what you're up to or other things that they should know about, um, anything that you'd like to share at all that feels relevant or appropriate. Yeah. Hmm. We covered a lot of bases. Mm -hmm. I think uh, you asked the right questions and set me off. At the beginning, I was thinking, wow, what are we going to do for two hours? <laughs> but uh, I should know. I, I can be a big talker, obviously. And I should know that's usually not a problem. <laughs> But um, one thing I want to say is just thanking you for doing what you're doing. I mean, this is a big part of the picture is uh, you're reaching out and making Sangha, you know, and especially during COVID times, it has to be sometimes online and even beyond COVID times, that's become our norm for our culture. So that's going to be a big part of the picture anyway. And, um, you know, that's part of a beautiful part of practice and a beautiful part of the solution for, for uh, trying to steer our culture in a healthier direction and, and, and save some, some of our natural world. Um, so mostly I just want to encourage people to think about how they can contribute Kind of what I was just saying, but how they contribute in a way that really makes them feel free and in a way that they love. And that generally, I think that's going to have something to do with creating community. So how can we, cre we create community? And that's a big you know, question for me. And uh, my group's really small. It meets on Sundays. I've started having a, a Friday night thing in this house because I have this house to use for now, not necessarily forever. We'll see what happens. But uh, um, so I'm having people come over Friday nights, you know, in small groups to be careful with, with uh, the pandemic situation. But um, mm -hmm. it's been really nourishing for me and for other people. We just have dinner and it's not, people know I'm a practitioner, you know, and some of the people that come are practitioners themselves and some are not. But, uh, and we end the evening usually with a little sitting, a little raga singing, but mostly it's just socializing mm -hmm. and um, having dinner together and sharing. And that's just so important. And so it might just be like that open up a house you have to some people, start a sitting group if that's what you want, or any practice that you do, start a group like that. You know, um, If you don't feel like you're a teacher, um, don't pretend to be one, 
but uh, that doesn't mean you can't organize a group and start practicing together, you know, and offer what you can. And when I started sitting with the group, it was someone that really was very humble and didn't consider themselves a teacher at all, but they knew how to give some zazen instruction and, and they knew how to start a group and it was beautiful and it, it touched a lot of people. So, um, so doing that and uh, any projects, even just having gatherings, even having uh, artistic venues that put things on and seeing how uh, sustainability and environmental awareness and sensitivity can come into that, seeing how spiritual practice can come into that. I mean, with art, it's, it's, not, it's not a big divide, right? Um, so I think, you know, on the one hand, creating community is gonna be very helpful for our environmental activism. On the other hand, it's just so good for our mental health. And then it's so good, so essential for our spiritual development that we should really connect with that and realize contemporary times, I mean, modern times, it's more than a hundred years, maybe in urbanized places, but now it's more all over the world. Isolation is such a big thing. And the breakdown of community is such a big thing. And, um, you know, Sangha is in the wider sense, not just Buddhist Sangha but Sangha with spiritual undertones, community with spiritual undertones is I think so essential. So I think it's helpful for all of us to start framing our, what to do with our lives as what can I offer that's, that's the most beautiful freeing and coming from a place of love. And generally that's gonna evolve community. How can I get, how can I foster community around something I can offer and, um, and make those connections? whether it's live, whether it's online, whether it's both, you know. Uh, so you're doing that. I'm just trying to do that in whatever clumsy way I'm doing. Um, and if anyone is, is you know, uh, I don't know if you can link my email or whatever, but if anyone mm -hmm. wants to connect with me, I'm very happy to do that. I'm very happy to do more of these. I don't get a lot of opportunity. I used to give more talks and stuff in the neighborhood, but since COVID, at least that's not happening so much. Mm -hmm. um, and also there's possibility of living in this house while I have it or future, future uh, communities I'd like to be a part of that I'd like to reach out and connect with other people, whether they think they want to be in a community with me or whether they just want to brainstorm about being in communities, you know, that's all I would love to be a resource and included, mm. um, included in that kind of thing. Uh, Yeah, that's all I can think of right now. If people want some direct action groups to connect with immediately, um, Extinction Rebellion that I mentioned before I, is one that I'm somewhat excited about. Who knows mm -hmm. how it developed in the States. It's still really small, but um, they're doing some good things. So you can look that up, of course, online. And, um, I work with Food Not Bombs, so um, that's a nice resource. It's many thousands of chapters around the world now. They're all different and they're not necessarily involving spiritual practice, although maybe it always is when you're trying to give food to people <laughs> out of compassion. Um, so uh, that's something I work with. Uh, nothing else is coming to mind right now. I have a website that very few people visit, but you can look at that. Um, I haven't been too active with, with writing, uh, but all my talks are going on. YouTube channel. On, uh, YouTube. Mm -hmm. uh, Touching Earth yeah. manga channel. So 
I'll be linking to both of those and your email yeah. as well in the Great. show notes. So, yeah. um, well, thank you again so much for your time. I, I so enjoyed this conversation and it's touched me and um, I'll, I'll hope that it touches others as well. And thank you so much for your time and for your practice and your life and your dedication. Yeah, and same to you. Thanks for making this opportunity happen and, and doing the work you're doing. I think it's crucial and beautiful. And um, I hope we stay connected and I hope it leads to other connections uh, with other people who get to see this. Yes, I think they will. <laughs> All right.